I'm David Nelson from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I'm glad to uh, moderate this biblical worship consultation this year. I want to tell you a little bit about what we've done with the consultation that began last year. And let me just read to you from the, uh, the purpose statement that was put together by the committee when we made application. Uh, the consultation will examine Christian worship from the perspective of biblical, historical, and theological studies. The intention is to encourage scholarship that rightly relates scripture, doctrine, and doxology, thus informing and enriching church practice, pastoral ministry, and missiology. We hope to promote the scholarly study of worship in the service of the church and to encourage a greater awareness of and commitment to these foundational concerns by Christian educators in the training of pastors and missionaries. So we are interested in scholarship related to uh, worship and liturgy, but we're also interested in seeing to the training of uh, pastors and, and others who will lead. Uh, last year, we focused on the need for such a focus and kicked off with a couple of papers and a panel discussion. This year, we wanted to get to the hard work of actually talking about where we are. And this year, we're focusing a bit on the state of affairs. Uh, we're going to hear from a man who is a pastor in a local church. Uh, we're going to hear from a scholar who teaches at, at Calvin College about what's going on in research and scholarship in, uh, in worship and liturgy. And then uh, Dan Ailshire from ATS is going to talk to us about what's actually happening in our ATS schools. And then we will conclude with uh, Dr. Bruce Ware presenting a paper on, on how theology matters for worship. So uh, a very good way for us to begin is for John Piper to come, uh, a pastor who cares deeply about the worship of God and his congregation. Welcome, Dr. Piper, as he comes. you sing these two verses with me? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. That's the aim of your life, I presume, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of his name. So, Lord, help us do it. Several years ago, Wayne Grudem said to me, Piper, you've got to come to ETS more often even though you're a pastor and you kind of dropped out for a while because you're surrounded by people who agree with you. And if you come here, you'll get criticized and that will be good for you because then you'll you'll be more helped in avoiding error and refining your your truth. And so um, I've tried to take him up on that. And so my my goal here is for you to, to get half the time and to ask hard questions and make nasty or helpful or whatever comments would help me uh, not make mistakes and refine what I think. Um, I've been, this is the nub. I'm going to talk about 20 minutes. We're going to be done at, at 3.35, leave a five-minute break, and the next one goes. That's what I was told we could do. So I'll do 20 minutes, and then we'll just open it up. So be thinking, what if you wanted to ask about this? 
This is the nub of what I've been saying for 25 years. I'm not going to say anything new for you. Almost everywhere I go, I try to say something like what I'm about to say here because it is so close to the heart of worship and governs life as worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and, and liturgical worship in the, in the church, I believe. So I have seven theses, and uh, we'll, we'll argue for one of them and just state the others, and then you can just go at it. Number one, my all shaping conviction is that God created the universe in order that he might be worshipped with white hot intensity by created beings who see his glory manifested in creation and history and supremely in the work of Christ. So God created the universe in order that he might be worshipped. Number two, people need to be confronted with how self-exalting God is in this purpose. So, confront them. Make them squirm with this, or they won't feel it. And if they don't feel it, they won't recognize their inveterate man-centeredness. The way I do it is by giving a quiz. And this is the way the quiz goes. It has about six questions. Quiz question number one. What is the chief end of God? The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy displaying and magnifying his glory forever. Second question. Who is the most God-centered person in the universe? Answer. God. Question three. Who is uppermost in God's affections? Answer. Not you. God. Question four, is God an idolater? Answer, no, he has no other gods before him. Question number five, what is God's chief jealousy? God's chief jealousy is to be known, admired, trusted, enjoyed, obeyed above all others. Question number six, do you feel most loved? It's the one that goes to the heart of the matter. Do you feel most loved by God when he makes much of you? Or freeze you at the cost of his son's life to enjoy making much of him forever. Number three, thesis number three. So the second one was press on it, push, push that, confront people with God's self-exalting purpose. Number three, it is good to press on this because if your people, those you care about, are God-centered simply because, consciously or unconsciously, they think God is man-centered, they are man-centered. If people are God-centered only because they believe God is man-centered, they are still man-centered and and self-centered in particular. Teaching God's God-centeredness forces the issue of whether we treasure God because of his excellency or because He endorses ours. It's frightening how many people I think are in our churches using God to confirm their own inviolable self-love. Number four. God's eternal, radical, ultimate commitment to his own self-exaltation permeates Scripture. His aim to be exalted, glorified, admired, magnified, praised, reverenced, 
is seen to be the ultimate goal of all creation, all providence, and all saving acts. So this is the one I will argue for. And I'll argue by just quoting a dozen scriptures or so. Here we go. So I'm, I'm, what I'm defending is how pervasive God's God-centeredness, how pervasive God's passion to exalt himself is in the Bible. It is pervasive. And we'll, we'll kind of go in chronological order, starting in eternity and going to eternity. He, pre, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. So we're predestined so that people will praise his grace. That's why he did what he did. Acts, I mean, uh, Ephesians 1, 5 and 6. God created the natural world to display his glory. The heavens are telling the glory of God. And it's true by design. And nobody designed it than God. So he designed the world. I'm, I'm realizing now I'm commenting on these. I've got to stop commenting on these because I'll take longer than 20 minutes if I do. I'm just going to read them. I'll try not to comment. You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Isaiah 49.3. That they might be my people. A name, a praise, and a glory for me. Jeremiah 13.11. Psalm 106.7. He saved them at the Red Sea. For his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Romans 9.17. I raise you up for this very purpose of showing my power in you. Talking about Pharaoh in, in that my name, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I mean, just feel the self-exaltation of these verses. And how if you acted this way, it would be horribly immoral which creates the problem I'm going to address in a minute. There I commented again. <laughs> I acted in the wilderness for the sake of my name, that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out, Ezekiel 20, 14. 1 Samuel 12, 20 to 22. After asking for a king, Samuel says, Fear not, for God will not cast away his people for his great name's sake. Ezekiel 36:22 Thus says the Lord God it is not for your sake O house of Israel that I'm about to act in bringing you back from the exile but for the sake of my holy name and I will vindicate my holiness and my great name and the nations will know that I am Yahweh for my own sake for my own sake I will act for how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another Isaiah 48, 11. Romans 15, 8 and 9. Now we're up to the incarnation. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You do it. You glorify your name now. Then a voice came from heaven. 
I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. These things make my spine tingle. I mean, if if these things don't form the warp and woof of the heart that is the, the ethos of your preaching, I just don't get it. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Collapse that down. Christ died so that we live for Christ. So Christ is radically Christ-exalting in his saving designs. Philippians 2.9 God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, don't forget how that verse began. God highly exalted him, and it ends, to the glory of God. This is God's design. In his son, God is getting glory for God. Isaiah forty-three twenty-five: I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Acts twelve twenty-three: immediately. The angel of the Lord smote Herod because he did not give glory to God. So God sent an angel to kill Herod for not glorifying God. Second Thessalonians 1 9. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed, Jesus is coming back to be marveled at. If you ask Jesus, why are you coming back? He says, I'm coming back to be marveled at. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to behold my glory, which you have given me in thy love for me before the foundation of the world. Habakkuk 2, 14, last one. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. No, there is one more. Revelation twenty one twenty three, And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That was number four. It permeates Scripture. Number five. This is not megalomania, because unlike... Our self-exaltation, God's self-exaltation, draws attention to what gives greatest and longest joy, namely himself. When you exalt yourself, or we exalt ourselves, we lure people away from the one thing that can satisfy their souls, the infinite beauty of God. When God exalts himself, he manifests the one thing that can satisfy our souls, namely God. Therefore, God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the most loving act and the highest virtue. Because definition of love is all important here. Nobody outside the Bible understands what love is. The Bible dictates what love is, and America doesn't get it. Love 
labors and suffers to enthrall us with what is infinitely and eternally satisfying, namely God. That's what love does. Therefore, when God exalts God and commands us to join him, he is pursuing our highest, deepest, longest happiness. This is not megalomania. It is the definition of love. Unless you define love in a way that puts you at the center. Love is God's unremitting pursuit at great cost to his son's life of what will enthrall you forever. Namely, himself. Number six. God's pursuit of his glory and our pursuit of our joy turn out to be the same pursuit. This is what Christ died to achieve. First Peter 3.18. Christ suffered once the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. To, to do what? Be bored? No. To see his glory and enjoy him forever. Christ died for this. And number seven. To see this and believe this and experience this is radically transforming to worship. Whether personal and corporate or corporate, whether marketplace or liturgical. I'm done. And the rest of our time, I would really like you to create problems for me. Um, if you can, I mean, if you if you think this is just so obvious that there's nothing to ask questions about and no application issues, then then the next person will get a head start here. So I'm totally wide open to any comments or any questions about any exegetical thing, application thing, implication thing, communication thing, or anything else. So go ahead. Be loud for me. When you say God, do you mean God the Father, or are you speaking of God as Trinity? I move around, depending on what text I'm quoting. Um when I say God in my own talk, I mean the Trinitarian Godhead. Uh, go ahead, follow up. Well, that for sure. Well, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what preeminence means. So, um, let me let me say what I think, and you tell me if it relates to your question. I'm an Edwardsian when it comes to what I'm saying here, and I'll, I'll unpack in the Trinitarian mutuality fellowship that has existed from all eternity. There's a glorious. I left out a thesis. The thesis was the origin of the universe resides most deeply in the infinite energy expressed between the Son and the Father in their mutual delight in each other's excellency, mediated by the person of the Holy Spirit, exploding in a Vesuvius of shared joy. Something like that. <laughs> there, there could be what I've said here could not be if there were no Trinity. If there were no father and son infinitely esteeming, admiring, enjoying each other from all eternity, with that being 
This is over our heads here. Mediated, carried back and forth by the Spirit who in our hearts pours out the love of God. That is the passion that God has for us and his image in us. Then what I've said just wouldn't work here. So radically Trinitarian. However, I thought maybe you were going to go here. Some have said, don't don't talk about God's. Exalting God. Talk about God's exalting the son. In other words, keep it in the family so it doesn't sound self-centered. See, if if the father exalts the son, that sounds like the father is not self-exalting. He's exalting the son and, and vice versa. I think that is true. I mean, they do exalt each other and they're committed to. And the Holy Spirit is above all committed to exalting them. He's kind of the humble, quiet, retiring member of the Trinity who's always putting forward Jesus in, in the gospel proclamation. But I think it's a, an escape tactic for how offensive these texts are as they stand. As they stand, they get in people's face. And my, my whole agenda here is I want to I want to breed churches and saints that don't put on a veneer of Christianity while inside they remain radically me-centered, radically self-centered. And I'm just trying to think of strategies to how to get at that and explode that thing again and again so that when we, you know, lift our hands in worship like we do at our church, and we're not just getting buzzes from the music and buzzes from, from, from pop psychology that's coming through whatever song or whatever. We really have been shattered in ourself by the radical centrality of God in the universe. Go ahead, keep going. Yeah, so what does this look like liturgically? What service brings this forward? I don't think it's limited to any litur- liturgy. I'm not a liturgist. I'm, I'm a formal, open-ended person. And I've, I've got... I think the New Testament is... Um, a is as empty of guidelines on the specifics of worship services as it is because it's a missionary handbook for the nations. Had it gotten specific about specifics, we would have tried to export those specifics to Papua New Guinea or Afghanistan and therefore go ahead, follow up. Not much. It has a lot of relevance in terms of God's holiness and God's, I mean, I'm giving you my opinion. I just said, not much. Like, who are you, Pipers? <laughs> you, you understand that? These are opinions of John Piper. Okay, when I say not much, I realize you might have a different opinion and I could be wrong. But my read on, on this is that I do not get a lot of help whether to do services Sunday morning, whether, whether they should be preaching in the front or preaching in the back, whether it be preaching at all. Um, hymn singing, psalm singing, guitars, organ, no music at all, pews, uh, shared prophecies, healings. I, I just don't think there's much guidance in the New Testament as to form. And the reason is because unlike the Koran and all these others, we can take this book to any place in the world and inflesh it. Andrew Wall's kind of. It definitely has a negative connotation to me, and therefore I might use it for shock effect. But proud to me is a sin. Pride is a sin. 
And it's a sin because it's not something creatures are supposed to be. So if I'm going to apply it to God, then I kind of, ooh, I've got to baptize this here. God can do what creatures are forbidden to do, namely exalt himself. So you're going to call that pride? Well, better explain it good if you do, because it's, it's attended with people are proud, arrogant, because they don't recognize how big God is. God is proud precisely because he recognized how big God is. The, the, the way you can baptize the word proud with the, uh, the Greek, uh, oh, help me. But we don't, we boast in, don't boast in yourself, boast in the Lord. What's that word? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's, it's, we, boasting is another word I don't like. And yet we're told, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So I, I can baptize the word boast. I suppose I could baptize the word pride. But I, I don't like the word pride for myself. I, I don't even talk about being proud of my children. That's how sticky I am with the word proud. I say to my sons, I love what you did. I'm so, I admire you so much. I, I just go on and on with alternative words because to me, pride just sticks in my craw uh, against the wall. Absolutely. Excellent question. Absolutely excellent question. And, of course, it's not an isolated text. There are hundreds of them. <laughs> I mean, we should, whether you use the word love or thank or praise or glorify or honor or treasure, his gifts are awesome, right? <laughs> we're breathing and we're living and we're thinking and we're feeling and we're going to eat pizza and drink Diet Coke and and. And what should we do with all these things? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, so this is, I'm getting to the answer. I have thought so much about this issue of being creatures, being creatures with bodies who eat, have sex, see beautiful things with our eyes, hear beautiful things with our ears. In other words, we're being barraged with idols, potentially. Did God do all that just to create a temptation? Are the heavens telling the glory of God so that people would create sun idols? No. We, we were praying the other morning, Tuesday morning, 6.30 prayer meeting. When we were doing, we opened our eyes at this time of year at 7 o'clock with the east-facing window, the sun is coming up under the clouds. And that's how, that's how sunrises are created. When sun shines down on clouds, it makes white clouds. When he's shining from the horizon up under the clouds, it's spectacular. Why does he do things like that? So that we will see that gift and love him because he's that kind of giver, that kind of beauty. So my short answer is, yes, we love him because of his gifts, because the gifts speak of him. The gifts, we, he made creatures with bodies. He made creatures with eyes and ears and senses and all of that, not just to tempt us, but to mediate his glory through created things and idolatry is when your affections terminate on the gift instead of like C.S. Lewis. You remember that? You remember that uh, beam in a barn uh, story? It's, a, it's an essay. You walk into a dark barn and there's the sun out and there's a little slit in the uh, in the timber. And it creates a beam like a laser. You can see it. You've seen it. And the dust beams are flying around in the beam. And you're looking at it. And that's, of course, the glory of God. That's that's the sun. And it's a gift. And you look in it and you love it. And then you walk into it. Like this. 
and your eyes go right up into the sun and it's blindingly glorious. That's what gifts are for. Pizza is for that. I mean, what else does whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God mean? It means eat it in a way that calls attention to the infinite value of the glory of the maker of the pizza. This is our people have got to get this because they do live in bodies. They, uh, so no way do I want to to play off love for him through his gifts and love for him for his excellencies. They're they're not in competition unless we're idolaters. Absolutely, because of Philippians two. Philippians two, and so. Uh, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and suffered and died. I mean, the, the, the beautiful imagery of the God man becoming model man for us is is humility. So so God's humility would be his condescension. I'll let you follow up his, his condescension to come down and become one of us so that he could die for us and bring us up into the enjoyment of his Go ahead. Does he model humility prior to the incarnation? Now, that's a good question. Let me think. I don't know if I've ever asked you. That's, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. That's, I don't know that I've ever asked that question before. Does he, does he, does he model humility uh, before the incarnation? Well, let's just say before creation. From all eternity has he been a humble God. Well, here's, I'm just thinking out loud now, okay? I think on my feet. Um, Surely he is what moved him into Philippians 2. He has always been that impulse in God to come in Philippians 2 didn't happen in God. It was always there. So in that sense, yes, God has always been the kind of God who would uh, look at the Father in the form of the Son and make an equation. A covenant of redemption and say, son, will you empty yourself and redeem a rebellious people for us who would praise us forever, even praise us for our humility? I mean, I, I, I seldom sing more exuberantly than when I sing about the condescension of the son on my behalf. So, yes, I think uh, I think the son at that moment in eternity, even though there are no moments in eternity, said, yes, father. I will do this. I will I will take on flesh. I will go low. I'll put aside the outward forms of glory and I will I'll do this. So in that sense it's always been there. I was just wondering, um, you said that God is not a megalomaniac um, when he exalts himself because we benefit. So is he a megalomaniac when he exalts himself and it results in the common condemnation? It, it, I'll repeat the question since you may not have heard it. That's an excellent, very, very difficult and, and important question. It, I argue that he wasn't a megalomaniac because he, his self-exaltation is love. And, and he's pointing out it's not love to everybody. It's love to the elect. And for those who are not, it's not. Is, is God a megalomaniac in regard to the reprobate? I'm putting words in your mouth, but... That's it, isn't it? Okay. Um, no, I wouldn't want to say God is a megalomaniac in, in any regard. Um, I suppose you have to define megalomaniac. 
Um, I mean, by definition, it's a bad thing. And, and God is holy and good and pure, and in him is light, and there's no darkness at all. Um, my answer to the question of how the non-elect, uh, or just if you're not a Calvinist, just junk those words, the lost, because uh, we all have the same problem here, um, um, it is my way of handling it is to say that those the, the lostness of the lost is in fact part of God's love for the elect, and I base this on on uh, Romans nine. I'll just read it to you so I get the wording exactly right. I mean, this is the hardest and most ultimate question in the universe, I think, and and uh, I don't know of any text that goes closer to why God does what He does than. In these words, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And then here comes this purpose clause in order. So he, he's in he's enduring vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So that's the reprobate in my categories. He's enduring them in order to make known the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy. So my, my answer is that even there, he is acting, that, that he ordains that not everybody be saved is part of the means by which he displays the fullness of the glory, including wrath and power to the vessels of mercy. And the, the mystery here, please don't, don't feel like I don't think this is hard, okay? I'm tossing this out like, whoa, that's heavy. Yes, um, the... The fact is, we all have mysteries. We just draw our mystery lines in different places. And I, I draw mine at the fact that I believe that text can be true, God still be just, and those people still be accountable. Okay? That's kind of like my trinity. <laughs> all men are accountable. God's absolutely sovereign, and even ordains that some will not be saved. And um, what was the third one? I lost it. Okay. And that would be text is true. That may not be an adequate example. That, that's a very. Are you writing these? You should write these down, Dave. Those last two questions, because because I need to I need to think through to get good answers for these. That's why I'm here. So keep making it hard for me, okay? You you were you and then you, okay? Yes. Yes. So the question was, since we are saved and then later glorified and there's this gap, does it seem odd to me that God's, how do you say it, self-exaltation doesn't happen to, 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 to fix what you said fully at the moment of salvation? Which means, why aren't I glorified as soon as I'm born again? Or is that... Right. Yes. So why wouldn't God step in, get from my heart and my transformation the full reflection of his glory that he will get when I'm glorified at the end? I don't know. <laughs> but I have an idea. OK, I have an idea because I mean, I, th this is not for me 
a theoretical question. I know people, and I would say this about myself, for whom the greatest threat to my perseverance and my ultimate salvation is the slowness of my sanctification. It's not theoretical issues like did he rise from the dead or the problem of evil. I've got answers. But why I sin against my wife the same at age 62 that I did at age 42 causes me sometimes to doubt my salvation or the power of the Holy Spirit. Or, I mean, you you, you get the idea. This question is not theoretical. Why God doesn't step in and do what he's going to do. And if free will is absolutely zero help here because he can and will at the last day in the twinkling of an eye, I will never sin again. Don't you believe that? In the twinkling of an eye, at the second coming, I will never sin again. He could have done that 40 years earlier. Not a problem. And Satan, here's my, so the way I pose the question is, why does he let Satan go around like a roaring lion seeking? He's going to throw him in the lake of fire eventually without compromising anybody's free will. He's going to throw Satan in the lake of fire and he's going to sanctify me in an instant. Why, God, why not now? Please, more now. Because you wouldn't you get more glory if Piper were more holy? I mean, if you didn't have to apologize so often? Evidently not. And my, my answer as to why, why would be this. If God steps in and with raw power nullifies Satan, throws him this afternoon into the lake of fire, what will be glorified is his power. Leaving him marauding around, putting seeds of thought in your mind that sex is better than God and food is better than God and success is better than God shows by your triumph in the power of the Holy Spirit over those temptations that God is not only powerful, he's infinitely precious and valuable. God is evidently more into being showed a treasure in your triumph over the evil one than he is in showing now his awesome power over your sin and Satan's reality. That's my best shot. I don't know if it will carry uh, is an adequate answer. But as, as I'm pushed in my own heart to figure out why God wouldn't want to exalt himself more in my total sanctification now and Satan's total removal now, my answer is since the Bible portrays it as a process, God must, in the big picture, get more glory through the process. Now, behind you. Oh, yes. Okay, so the question is, you've got seven points here. They work nice in this theological room. You're talking to the guy on the airplane. I mean, that's what I did coming out here. Or, or an unbeliever, or is that the idea? How in the world can you get this across to somebody who's outside this realm of discourse entirely? Okay. Hates that about God. Michael Prowse writing in Financial Times, C.S. Lewis at age 28 thought the psalm sounded like an old woman demanding compliments. Praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. That's all I ever hear God say. C.S. Lewis hated this God. Um, So this is not your... Don Carson on a tape I listened to the other day said he used to do missions and the questions would be 20, 30 years ago, how do you prove the resurrection, blah, blah, blah. Today the questions are, and the first one he mentioned was, how come God's such an egotist as to demand worship? We're not talking about theoretical stuff here in terms of evangelism. Okay, here's my answer. On the plane, I meet this guy, hi, where are you going? 
I'm going to a theological and I'm going to talk about worship. And he, I can tell this guy's shutting down real fast. <laughs> it's the first time ever in the history of my life when the person next to me on the plane would not take a book from me. I always give my books away on the plane and try to explain why. Like Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ is my, my favorite little evangelistic book. And I said, could I, I wrote this book. I'd love to give it away. Please take this. And he said, you better give it to somebody that could benefit from it. But he, before that, here's what I did. This is my effort to answer your question. I... I said, can I give you a three-minute synopsis of my talk? Well, sure. So I'm going to try out these seven points in three minutes on him. I got out of my briefcase the back of a um, National Geographic that I photographed, Nature Valley Granola Bars. Have you seen this? It's a picture of a mountain. I should have brought it. Just kicking myself. It's no, never mind. It's in my other case. Um, it's a picture of a mountain. And at the top of the mountain is a pinnacle. It goes way up, maybe 500 feet. And at the top is this little speck of a man with his arms out like this and rope hanging down from his arms. And the scene is panoramic, huge, deep valley, high mountain pinnacle. And he's up there and your knees get wobbly watching it. And at the top of this granola ad, the words go like this. Never felt more insignificant. Never felt more alive. I thought, <laughs> can you believe the sermon on the back of National Geographic, which is a pagan magazine to the max? And, and I said, does that make sense to you that God, by exalting himself through the magnificence of nature, and making us feel small would be loving us and making us alive, feel alive. Does that make any sense to you? And he, he just grunted at me. This guy did not want to talk at all. But I'm, I'm making an effort to do what you said. And the last thing I said to him was, one of my favorite things is to notice that in America, self-esteem is a really big deal. And I've never heard anybody say that they went to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. Why do you think that is? He didn't want to talk. The answer, this is, this is my effort to try to get in the categories. See, I believe the written on our hearts, written on our hearts is a huge need for and desire for, uh, majesty. Greatness, glory, and mountains will never do, and yet we go to mountains. Canyons will never do, and yet we go to canyons. We, the next best thing is to put big glossy books on our coffee table or go to movies where everything's blowing up. This, these are all substitute glories, and, and so you can find uh, remnants of, of God awareness. It's like Romans 1 says, and you can show them that God's Radical exaltation of himself is really for your good. I, I, I have seen some people get it out of unbelief, but mainly I'm talking to I'm talking to Christians and our our time is up. May I may I I wanted to say one last thing. I got done listening a few minutes ago to 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 Wallace and Hill, Dan, um, those two guys at the two plenaries. And I simply came away filled with gratitude for this. ETS. Because as a pastor, I, I just don't do that anymore. I, I don't have time. I don't have inclination. And, and uh, I'm, I'm losing ability. 
uh, to do what they're doing. And I just came away saying, God, keep it faithful. That is so, the, the fact that he said the incarnation demands rigorous, historical, hard, risky investigation. And I, everything in me is saying, yes, it does. Not, if, if you all start doing what I do, it would be terrible. And I'm talking to the scholars among you. So I'm just know that I come here with a sense of tremendous gratitude for what God has done in strengthening and, and preserving this this ETS. And thank you for those questions. At least two or three of them have have pushed me beyond where I, I have ever gone before. Thanks.